Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. Please welcome Executive Director Jonathan Haupt and his guest tonight, Tim Conroy. Thank you, Pam. It's great to be here again. I've been fortunate to be a guest on this show once before, and in the course of that interview, Pam invited me to come back and host. And uh, what a wonderful thing to do. What an incredibly generous offer to make for me and for our Pat Conroy Literary Center. It's given me the chance to invite some writers on the program and share some stories and some personalities with all the listeners out there who love books and literature and learning as much as I do. And when I looked at the first date that Pam gave me today, April 22nd, I realized that was the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It's the midpoint of National Library Week, and we're coming into the home stretch here in National Poetry Month. And I knew I wanted to have a writer on the program as my first interview who could touch on all of those things, for whom all of those would be uh, connective threads in the story of a writing life. So I was thrilled to be able to get Tim Conroy on the show today. Tim is a poet joining us from Columbia, South Carolina, just down the road from us here in Beaufort. Tim is a happily retired educator and school administrator, crossed the threshold into his writing life not that many years ago. Since then, his work has been published in a number of journals, magazines, and anthologies, including Fall Lines, Antebellum, Blue Mountain Review, Jasper Magazine, and the collection Marked by the Water. Tim is also one of the 67 writers who so generously lent their voices and their time to the award-winning anthology Our Prince of Scribes, writers remember Pat Conroy, of which I'm the embarrassingly proud co-editor. In 2017, Muddy Ford Press published Tim's very first book of poetry titled Theologies of Terrain. That collection was edited by Columbia City Poet Laureate, our friend Ed Madden. Tim is also a founding board member of our Pat Conroy Literary Center here in Beaufort, established in honor of Tim's biggest big brother, Pat Conroy. And in his work with our Conroy Center, Tim has developed and presented a touring lecture about Brother Pat's great love of poetry. Tim has also participated in our poetry readings and taught a writer's workshop as part of our ongoing Our Prince of Scribes Writers Conference. And he's led an amazing discussion of his brother's first novel, The Great Santini. More recently, Tim has been involved in some online projects with some of our poet friends in Columbia and with Pat's alma mater, The Citadel, all of which I hope we get to later in the program. But for now, I want to say welcome, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. Oh, I'm glad you were able to do this. It's, uh, it's a nice moment to do here for Earth Day and for National Library Week and for National Poetry Month, and I certainly don't want to spend all our time talking about Brother Pat, but like your brother, you grew up in the house of Santini uh, with your dad, Colonel Don Conroy, and your mom, Peg Conroy, two figures that Pat wrote about quite a bit, uh, obviously shaped his own life. 
and you came along and there was Pat and your brother Carol already trying to find their place as writers, already trying to cross that threshold and really emerged for you as sort of your, your first literary heroes. So as our point of entrance into our conversation, I'd love for you to say a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the house of Santini, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I still remember the photograph uh, in my mind in in 1968 where my father was the CEO uh, of flight training uh, for for the entire East Coast, anything that took off. We were stationed in Pensacola. And that, in that photograph, he's in his dressed whites, and he's sitting uh, in the r- bottom right-hand corner. And my brother Tom, who's the youngest, sitting next to my dad. And I'm sitting next to Tom, and on the other side is my beautiful mom. And in that back row, my brother's Jim, um, my, bro- my sister Kathy, my brother Pat is in the middle of that photograph, my sister Carol and my brother Mike. And what when that image of that photograph, when I think of that image, it just reminds me that all expectations, all of Santini's expectations, fell on the firstborn, fell on the progeny of Pat. And you know, so when Pat was growing up, uh, Jonathan, as you know, he wanted uh, he had an ambition. He had an ambition that was uh, his ambition early on. And also it was the ambition of my sister, Carol's. Uh, they both wanted to be poets more than anything else in the world. And they, uh, and I've thought about this. And I've thought, why, why poetry? Why did they choose that as their ambition early on? And I kind of have come to the conclusion, uh, and I paraphrase the Irish poet Seamus Heaney with this, is imagination presses back against the violence of the world. We were a family that had a secret. We were a family that kept secrets. And that's hard on any child. It's hard on any family. And the secret was, of course, the abuse of my father. So that's a little bit of the story. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully said. And we certainly talk about that aspect of, of Pat's life and your life and of the whole family, that there needed to be either an overt or occasionally a covert pushing back against uh, the power of your dad, the violence of your dad, the physicality of it all. And Pat and Carol found their their pushback, their toolkit, uh, their creativity in the idea of being poets. But it also created for them a, a sort of sibling rivalry, a kind of a way for them to challenge each other to see who could, who could get, get through that doorway quickest. And there was a particular poem that you and I have talked about uh, that you've referenced many times. Uh, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that as well. Pat would drive me crazy with this poem. And, and Carol and Pat would tease each other around a poem by a 20th century poet, a Greek, C.P. Capasi. And the poem is Shafasi el Gran Refilto. And the poem goes, uh, 
something like this. This is a translation. To certain people, there comes a day when they must say the great yes or the great no. He who has the yes ready within him reveals himself at once. And saying it, he crosses over to the path of honor and his own conviction. He who refuses does not repent. Should he be asked again, he would say no again. And yet that no, the right no, crushes him for the rest of his life. So Pat and Carol would go after each other. Who was going to say the great yes? Who was going to say the great no? And in my telling and in my story, they both say the great yes to this unbelievable ambition of, of trying to emerge as writers. At the time, they both wanted to emerge as poets. Uh, Carol would go on and uh, uh, write a first collection of poetry later called The Jewish Furrier, and it would earn her a fellowship at the University of Virginia uh, where she would work on her next collection that would be published by Norton. And that uh, collection was The Beauty Wars. And, and two of the poems in The Jewish Furrier would end up being published in the Paris Review. So not a bad start for Carol. And, of course, we know Pat. He wrote poetry all through the Citadel. And actually the first two years out of the Citadel when he was teaching in, in Beaufort High School, he still wanted to emerge as a poet. And in time, he found that that wasn't going to be his path. But he, he also figured out a way to take everything he loved about poetry, the, the lyrical beauty of the language, the precision of it, and translate that to his prose. And that's the, the lyrical poetic prose of Pat Conroy that his readers have come to love. So Pat, even though we don't necessarily think of him as a poet through the body of his work, through what people are most familiar with, if you dig down, and you don't have to dig that far down, frankly, into those later books, you see the poetry. It's still there on the page to be found. And, and I think that speaks volumes about Pat and Carol's life and their ability to say yes at such a young age, to commit so fully to that path at such a young age and, what, and know they were going to make that happen for them. And you, that, that's one of the things I know you, you say and I say to emerging writers. That's one of the things you have to have is you have to have that conviction to work through your mediocrity, the rejection, the failure. You, that's, that, that great yes comes first. It has to be first to get to the part of the real work, the real hard work of reading everything you can, of, of writing and filling up journal after journal until you can discover the rhythm of your language. Uh, and that's what Pat did. That's what Carol did. Unfortunately, that's not what I did. Well, let's talk about that, too, because that's another story that I think is really empowering for people to hear. So many of the writers that I get to work with at the Conroy Center are folks who are a little bit later in their lives. They've had a career and a family, and they've had lots of things that they've put in front of their creative life. So they've been saying the great no. They would very much like to say the great yes, but they haven't had that opportunity or they don't think they've had that opportunity at any rate. And this was sort of your story as well. You've said the great no for a long, long time, but that's, that's not the only answer a person can give. And you were given an opportunity to say the great yes. And tell us about that. 
you know, I, I definitely uh, owned the great no to for years. You know, I thought really, you know, it, it's enough. One family. I had this genius uh, of a of a brother uh, who was this incredible writer. Who, by the way, was the nicest human being I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Who was the best big brother I ever had or could have. I could not have picked a better big brother. And uh, who I loved and adored. I had a sister who I loved and adored. Uh, and both of them were huge influences in me. As I said my no, both of them would not let them alone. Carol would send me books of poetry, letters of poets I should be reading. She knew I wanted also to, to write poetry. She knew I was interested in it. Pat, every time I saw Pat, every time I visited with Pat, uh, as you know, he like uh, he would do this with everybody. You, you showed the slightest, made the mistake of uh, opening your mouth and, and showing the slightest interest in a topic or or a book or an author. You would leave his house with stacks of books, and he would just fill you up. And he uh, also would ask me question after question. You know, was I writing? What was I doing? And really, I just, I, for years, rejected it. I wanted to become uh, the best teacher I could become. I wanted to become the best educator I could become. And that's what my focus was until much later. Uh, You know, of course, I secretly wrote. I secretly kept things. But I never showed them to anybody. Uh, Never got feedback to anybody. And you know sort of what happens. Do you want me to go into that, or you, you uh, or do you have any? Comments I do, yeah, because we've we've talked a little bit about you know Pat giving you books, but at one point he sent you a whole person and a fairly large and intimidating person at that. So I'd love to for you to tell that story. He he sent a, um, a Citadel um, um, graduate to my door. Um, you know, of course. Um, Pat graduated from the Citadel Military College in South Carolina, in Charleston, South Carolina. He went there through 63 through 67. So Pat sends this friend who's also a writer, um, and his name is Sam Burton. And I open my door, and this giant bear of a man is standing on my porch. And I do what anybody would do. Uh, Like, what do you want? What are you doing here? And he says, your brother sent me. And I say, oh, great. What's he want? And so I eventually invite Sam in. And Sam uh, looks at me and he goes, your brother sent me to ask you to join my writing group called the Ink Plots. And I said, Sam, I don't care what he wants. You know, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. But Sam does not leave. He pleads with me, and he finally gets me uh, with this uh, comment. He goes, your brother will hate me unless you give this a try. And so something melted, something happened, and I said yes. Uh, Even though it was a sort of under protest, I said yes for the first time. And from that yes began my writing journey. Are you still in the ink plots, Tim? Are you still in that writing group? We, yeah, we're still in that group, and, and we, 
you know, we don't need as much as we used to uh, because, you know, how lives get complicated and, and yeah. uh, the, the ebb and flow of, their, of writing groups happens. But I'm not only in that group, I'm in three other poetry groups. Uh, the Ink Plots really was a prose group. And so they yeah. didn't know a whole lot about poetry, which was a good thing because everything I showed them, they sort of liked. And so I, it was just this wonderful, uh, you know, group of encouraging men and women that uh, really assisted my growth. It started my, my path through really uh, showing people mediocre work and trying to get that work better. Mm-hmm. So we may have stumbled onto a good bit of writing advice here, and that is that it's Easy to be the best poet in your writing group if you are the only poet in your writing group. Uh, the same logic by which, yes, I, I am the most handsome man in my book club because I'm the only man in my book club. So that's, uh, we may have stumbled onto a good bit of advice out there. But uh, you know, I want to make sure we do justice to Sam in this story too because Sam, yes. at the point that you met him, was a really wonderful young adult novelist but he started out doing a number of other things. This is a man who was an ex-cop, an ex-professional wrestler, one of the largest, most intimidating human beings you have ever seen based on sight alone, but um, a man with just a remarkably magical poet's soul, kind, gentle soul. And the serendipity of Pat sending... Biggest heart and bad in the world, you know, absolutely. Yes, indeed, yes. But there's a bit of serendipity of Pat sending this guy to come see you, not just because of the Citadel connection, but Sam, too, was somebody who had said the great no a long time and then found his opportunity to say the great yes as well. So for him to be your point of entrance into the ink plots and everything that followed, I think, is really remarkable. It's just, uh, as I say, a good bit of serendipity. And, that and you note, know, I also course- want to... You know, of course, the great thing about what's happened now with Sam is, is his son in, in 2020 is going to graduate from the Citadel. Um, yes, and, you know, the great right. line of cadets is, is, is you know, which often happens in family, families. His son, um, Sam Alexa, Alexi Morton, will graduate in mm-hmm. 2020. Yeah. Sam wrote a beautiful essay about the Citadel and his experience there in the State of the Heart anthology series that our friend Aida Rogers edited. And I think that's how I was first introduced to Sam, not through his fiction, but through his sort of love letter to the Citadel and and how important that place was to his formation, not just as a writer, but as a man. Really beautiful essay in that book. Uh, But where I want to steer us now, uh, thinking in terms of serendipity still, is for you to talk about what happened uh, with the poem that you wrote in, uh, in sort of recognition of Kathleen Robbins for uh, the Columbia Museum of Art, because that too is very much a story of serendipity. Well, you know, kind of I have to start it, Jonathan, with you a little bit because of, of November of 2015. Is that right? Was it the, or was it late October of 2015? where you had the Pat Conroy uh, at 70 uh, festival. Um, um, October I, of 15, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, October of 15. And you brought together all these wonderful uh, authors and writers and movie stars 
for this celebration of Pat's life, celebration of his birthday. And at the end of that uh, festival, uh, that uh, the concluding remarks, um, you know, what, uh, what happened was just magical. You had Bronwyn Dickey read her father's poem, one of Pat's favorite poems, The Last Wolverine. And the, and the audience was just spellbound. And then Pat gets up and gives this impromptu 20-minute, I mean, 20-minute, five-minute speech, which is one of the most unbelievable five minutes I've ever felt. It was electric. And he was just really sort of expressing deep gratitude to people in such a loving way. Well, we all know what happens. We, We know you fast forward and December comes in January, and Sandra and Pat have gotten the news that it has pancreatic cancer. So uh, around this time, you know, I, I've uh, gone into a presentation uh, to watch Kathleen present her, her book, photograph the essay book, Into the Flatland. And these are photographs of the Mississippi Delta. And, you know, we're still helpful about Pat. We're, everybody's still doing things. And I, I see this book, and it just captures my imagination. I write this poem about uh, her photographs, and I send it to Pat, but he really quickly becomes too sick to really be able to really respond. He says a few things, but it's not, you know, I, I know if he would have been feeling better, he might have said some more things about just insights about how to improve it. And because he was that way, but um, so anyway, we know what happens. March fourth, Pat succumbs and he dies from pancreatic cancer of 2016. A month later, uh, in April, early April, it might have been April second, Sam Morton dies. So these two figures that have come in that that I have loved and adored. It are gone, and I am just stunned. And and often when things like that happen, when you suffer emotional loss, it wounds in such a way where it it wounds true. And and so I start working on poetry, sort of has I never did it for Pat. I never got a book out for Pat. And I and my focus was to try to get this book out for Pat. And, and so anyway, I wrote this poem, and I sent uh, – and the poem's called Theology of Terrain. I sent it to my neighbor, Kathleen Robbins, who was having an art installation at the Columbia Museum of Art. She says, Tim, could, we, could you read the poem at the art installation of my photographs? And they converted my uh, poem uh, on the wall, the museum curators, into about a six-foot poem about the size of my brother Pat. So I'm standing next to the poem. I read the poem, and it goes over good. It goes over well, and it's a real honor to do it. Kathleen's beautiful photographs are around the galley, gallery. And I, I walk down, and I go into the main exhibit hall, and Jean Mutasami Ashes' photographs of Defusky Island are there. And I'm stunned to see these iconic images of Defusky. And I'm looking at these photographs, and I notice in a plexiglass display case in the middle of the room, there's something in it. So I walk over, and I'm just 
I looked down, and I could not have been more uh, surprised. I see Pat's handwritten manuscript that this, the museum curators had borrowed from the Irwin Department of Rare Books and Special Collections from the University of South Carolina in his um, yellow legal pad handwriting of The Water is Wide is in the display case. And I think to myself, thus is the honor and conviction of the great yes. And I just mm-hmm. experienced it. And it was just unbelievable. You think about the number of things that have to align, the number of variables that have to fall into a place. And it's like a, you know, hearing the tumblers fall into place to, to unlock a safe for all of those things to happen. And there you are quite unexpectedly with this poem you never knew you were going to write in one exhibit and adjacent to it are, is Jeannie's photos of Defusky Island. And then in the center of that, there is Pat's manuscript for The Water is Wide, brother and brother together, one room apart, uh, completing the circle. And, and Pat was a big believer in the power of the circle. So there it is, a story very much of serendipity and of saying the great yes. But you mentioned something along the way there too that I want to kind of circle back to, and that was that your that your work as as poet, as serious poet, as dedicated, committed poet, begins almost as a response to grief of you know, the loss of Pat, and then the loss of Sam Morton, and Pat's own poetry, at least as he described it began in a moment of grief, too, the loss of his high school best friend, Randy Randall. Pat always described that that very first poem to Randy Randall as being, uh, in his words, his first poem. I don't think he meant literally the first poem he ever wrote. He would have written things for classes and for journals before that. But his first poem he wrote for someone else to read really was a response to grief, too, and of Gene Norris, his teacher, giving him permission to grieve in that way. And here you were writing a poem, not not about the loss of Pat, but sort of propelled by that loss in its way. Jonathan, you, do you have that poem for Randy near you? The Randy, I don't have yeah. it with me. I've read it a couple of times online this week for National Poetry Month. Um, and so it's in our Museum on Monday feature on the Conroy Center Facebook page and YouTube channel right now. It really is an amazing poem and obviously very much influenced by Thomas Wolfe. You sort of feel that from beginning to end, but it's a, a pretty if, remarkable if, if poem. If you don't want I, I have it, I would, I'd love to read that if that's okay. You go for it. Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the other things I would say about this sort of poem in, in talking yeah. to young people, they often write uh, their first poems are from a place of really high emotion. And that's not, mm-hmm. it's not a bad place to start uh, uh, at all uh, with poetry. And it's an important place to start. The, the thing that really good poets do is they learn to channel that emotion. And, and that's the, the part. But let me read this poem. Uh, sure. I just love it. And it will bring back Pat a little bit. For Randy Randall. I have ceased to wonder at the rapid flight of days. The slice of birds and winter shout are but an effort meant to render nature praise. Myself, I wish to think about a hundred friends who walk a pathless street alone in search of lost and youth-grieved dreams. Once a boy, fluid-limbed and not quite fully grown, 
gave love to life and life it seems surfeited with the honey tooth of perfect joy yet darkness lit another place far off in the hills so shadow wrapped the boy in death and pressed his guiltless face into the flawless pages of eternal rhyme a snow fleece lamb of the earth and god bound child of time yeah, you know, it's for a beautiful poem. For Pat, what, was, was he 16 or 17 when he wrote that? He was 16. This is uh, spring yeah. of 62. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's an incredible poem. Uh, I, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd question whether or not it was the first poem Pat ever wrote, as I've said, although that's yeah. a claim he made. That's what he attached to it. But it's a brilliant starting point, and it's just brought with emotion, as you can as we can all hear you when you read it now, and it's loaded into that poem. What a, what an amazing starting point for any young writer. Absolutely, and and you know you 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 know with and Pat really I can't stress it enough. He really wanted to emerge as a poet, and then after the first two years of teaching at Buford High School, he's still writing these these poems, and he's still trying. And then he goes to the Fusky. He's keeping a journal. He's still kind of. Uh, he's so caught up in the predicament of these kids. Uh, he's, he's writing his thoughts down, but he's still trying poetry. And even after he writes The Water is Wide, he takes a course from James Dickey. And he, in that course, you can tell the rest. You know in that course, yes, I do, and I get to talk about this story. And this is a yeah. wonderful part of the presentation that we developed together, too, about Pat's great love of poetry, because this is sort of the moment of pivoting for Pat. But he goes into this course thinking James Dickey is the most extraordinary poet uh, living in that time, and here is Pat getting to actually take a class with him. He's going to learn to be as good of a poet as James Dickey. And what he learns instead in that class that he's never going to be as good of a poet as James Dickey in his estimation, but there's that passage, there's that sentence, that one line that he writes in his notebook from that class. Um, and it's, help me with the line, Tim, what is it? You've got to find the rhythm of your own language. Yeah, you find the rhythm yeah. of your language and stitch with it. with it. Yes, which is brilliant advice for any writer. But in that class, Dickie tells him flat out, you're not going to be a poet, which is a hard thing for a, a writer to hear. But I think Pat needs to hear it at that moment. And in those journals, as, as you've seen, as I've seen, we've got Pat writing various attempts at poetry up front. In the back, he's already starting to cheat on poetry, if you will. There's the beginnings of a, a short story in the back. He's making the transition into prose. And we see by the time that uh, the great Santini comes out near the end of that book, there is, uh, I mean, it ends with a sort of beautiful prose poem as prayer. And then by the time we get to Prince of Tides, there's poetry in, in virtually every line. He figures out how to make that transition to take what he loves most about poetry and make it work in prose and make it work in a way that's uniquely his own, something that he can then take ownership of is his writer's voice. And I'm telling you, if you read the last chapter of The Great Santini, reread that again, uh, listeners. It is pure poetry, where he uh, talks to God in that last chapter in this really an unbelievably beautiful language. Uh, it, is, it is just a remarkable last chapter. 
It is, and you spoke about that beautifully when you came and did our book club discussion of the great Santini, and folks can find that discussion on Conrad Center's YouTube channel and, and hear you talk about and read from uh, that closing of the great Santini. I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, and this also relates to you know, sort of what I was doing, what so many of us were doing to push back against our grief when Pat passed away. Uh, because that was the moment when our friend Nicole Seitz and I started putting together this anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, that I got to talk about with Pam the last time I was on this show. So I won't certainly repeat all of that. But you've got an essay in that book, and, and you are one of a handful of writers in that project who had a lifetime of stories to draw from. A lot of the contributors had maybe one or two moments with Pat Conroy, and they told the best Pat Conroy story they had. It meant a lot to them certainly has meant a lot to the readers who have encountered that, but you were one of a handful of contributors who really had a lifetime of stories to draw from. And kind of in the middle of your essay, uh, you tell a story that relates to um, Pat's personal library, something you mentioned earlier in the interview. And since it is National Library Week, I wanted just to take a chance here and talk a little bit about this incredible personal library that Pat amassed. By the time he passed away, he had, as we estimate, about 8,000 books in his library. He was in the habit of trying to read 200 pages a day. He was only writing about three to five pages a day. That's the ratio of, of writing to reading in Pat's life. And I get to talk about all of these things in a touring presentation that I do called I Was Born to Be in a Library, which I've been doing for three years now all over South Carolina and Georgia. And people are just amazed to think about Pat as as a reader. But the other thing that he did with this library, as you mentioned earlier, is that it was sort of a lending library where Pat as librarian would do what any good librarian does. You come into a library with a question, and a good librarian will direct you to the resources that are going to answer that question for you. And in your Our Prince of Scribes essay, you talk about going to uh, what I assume is the Fripp Island House and yep, talking to Pat about wanting to make this transition into poetry and Pat just pulling book after book uh, off the shelf for you. Would you talk a little bit about that, too, and what that weekend was like? Sure. It, you know, going down to Pat's house uh, when he was – when he had time to spend with you, uh, was an unbelievable gift because he's a great storyteller. He was hilarious. He was so funny. And we, it was going to be a brother weekend, which meant for a younger brother, the big brother had money. I knew I was going to eat well, <laughs> and I knew I was going to drink well. And uh, that was going to be – it was going to be a fun weekend for us. And he, Pat was an amazing cook. He could do unbelievable things. And he, he – he, uh, I think we had crab cakes on on that first Friday night, and you know, the reason I say crab cakes is, you know, his his food is so good, and his wine was so good. We just had one of those moments where we were connected, and we were talking about life, and 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 we got to the point where it was intimate enough, intimate enough, where he knew I wanted to talk a little bit about my frustration about poetry, and I had been working on a poem that had not worked out. And as soon as that topic uh, came up, he started to immediately, we w went back into uh, the inner sanctum of his, of his office, which was just filled with bookcases and books and filled with poetry because he would 
use uh, poetry every morning uh, in the practice of his writing. He would go to poetry books to sort of uh, really to candle the pilot light, I think he would say in my reading life, um, that language hides. And, and he would, and so I left that weekend with just stacks and stacks of, of poetry books and other books that would help me along the way. And when he passed away, um, when, when Pat died, you know, the, the, one of the things that is sort of a holy thing for me is to go back into his office, to sit back into on uh, the chair by his writing desk and look to the left and see poetry books. Uh, see Auden, see Emily Dickinson, see James Dickey, uh, look to the right, see Dylan Thomas, uh, and, and see Wallace Stevens. See, look at all these poetry books that he had right there to grab uh, to help uh, really light those pilot lights. Now, it was amazing to, <clears throat> to sit at that desk and to think about Pat's writing day and day after day in that desk and think about, first of all, here's a guy who, who sits down and knows he's going to push through self-doubt before he does anything else. Same, same deal for every single writer. If there's another way to do it, I haven't found it and I don't know anybody else who has, but to help him do that, he would surround himself with books of poetry, as you say, and spend at least an hour reading that to kind of prime the pump and collecting words as he was doing it to writing down in, in his journal words that he would find in these poems that he wanted to incorporate into his, into his prose. And that was true from the beginning. Uh, when you read the, the Randy Randall poem, there's one word that's kind of jumps out there. It's, it's uh, probably the most complicated word in the poem, surfeited. And that's a Shakespearean word. That's a word that Pat and your mother had to go look up when they encountered it in uh, Shakespeare, and uh, Pat writes about that very experience, about that very word in my reading life. So this, this is a pattern he was in his entire writing life from the very beginning to surround himself with things that would inspire, things that would challenge with, with better writers than he was in his estimation and read those first before he did anything else. So when you would visit him and he could recommend a book to you, he would, he would pull the book off the shelf that he thought would challenge you. And that's what he did for you. That's what you describe so beautifully, so powerfully in your scribes essay. Thank you. Thank you. And, and yeah. Yeah, I had the best editors in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you and Nicole were just, just unbelievable. It, it was an amazing project and it continues to be, as you know, it's taken on a life of its own. But I want to circle back to something else we said at the onset to make sure we cover that terrain as well. And that's that here we are on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And we've had down at the Conroy Center uh, a number of times a writer friend of ours named Pam Durban, who was a self-described failed poet, as Pat was, a magnificent writer of novels and short stories and a master teacher. And Pam uses uh, very often as a point of entrance into conversations this concept that I know is not original to her, but I certainly associate it with her. And that's the idea that writers have a required subject matter. It's something that's it's just intrinsic to their soul, and they need to circle back around to it uh, because they're trying to figure it out on the page. 
And since we're here on Earth Day, I want to talk a little bit about you as nature poet, which maybe even isn't even a term that you would use to self-describe, but it's what I see, what I so often circle back to when I read your poetry. Those are the poems that I revisit time and again. And I've asked you, if you would, uh, to pick a couple of those you might be willing to share with our listeners and talk a little bit about them and, and read them in honor of Earth Day, if you would. I would love to. I'll read Hens and Chicks, and this is written uh, and dedicated to the women in my life that have saved me and been so important to me and the lessons I've learned about how they stick together. Hens and Chicks. In this squirrel of trouble, turn to your inheritance the clippings of sisterhood, grown in grief-watered soil, pap for the driest times, poised on pickets and tins, perched next to foundations on ledges in terracotta, clustering in tight-lipped resolve, rallying to you again and again, blooming, perishing, a descendancy of tough rosette, the succulent hearts of Ken's women. And Jonathan, do I have time to read another one? You do, absolutely. Okay, and this is Marsh Deer. Um, and this was written uh, from a workshop that started the draft uh, at Richland Library in Columbia. And the workshop leader was the eventual editor of my book, Ed Madden, the Columbia City Poet Laureate, Marsh Deer. They pratfall a journey between twisted shrub oaks, part the blades of saw palmettos, glide through the last dry tickle of bristle glass and foxtail, more like a string of hooved prayer beads, giving thanks to the wilds, their resolve, moss-draped, ask the dawn for its deepening, stands under its rosamber wonder. They tease the surf, it greets them kissing with wide smiles and quick legs. They kick and circle the white-tailed mystery, what draws them to the white foam, to the promise of crossings? What makes any creature choose uncertain currents? Green turtle hatchlings, bull sharks circling in creeks, translucent dreams, heart-shaped impressions disappearing on a declivitous shore. Lives are as fleeting as bird songs, as long as letting go. Thank I you, I love John. that poem. I'm a big fan of Marsh Deer, and thank you so much for reading that. We've got uh, two minutes left here, and I, I want to give you a chance to talk very quickly about uh, what you've been doing with our friend Al Black in Columbia. You know, Al Black and I are, are doing a, a Zoom video chat with the poets uh, around the state. We have done uh, and we, we put them up on YouTube and, and on Facebook. The show is called Chewing the Gristle, and we interview with the thought of these, these poets that are really accomplished poets like Marjorie Wentworth, Ed Madden, Lynn Lawson, with the thought of how we can gear questions to learn about these poets and, and have their comments help emerging poets. And so that's what we're trying to do. It's you know, it's it's something that, that in this period of this pandemic, this odd time, it's a way we can keep socially connected in a creative way. 
to the poets across the state. I think it's a great pro- project, and I'm so proud of you guys for doing it. And that's something that folks can find, as you say, on YouTube. Uh, give give us the title of the show again. It's Chewing the Gristle. Chewing the Gristle, yes. As you say, it's so important at this moment when we're really not able to gather in person to find other ways to stay connected in all aspects of our life. But that's especially true for, for creative people. And at the Conroy Center in Beaufort, we've taken a lot of steps to do that as well. We've been offering a growing number of writing workshops. We've got a bunch of those coming up this month. I've been doing virtual tours of the Conroy Center, uh, which I see you have signed up for under the guise of Baby Goo Goo. So uh, Tim will be joining us on our virtual tour of the Conroy Center, which is coming up on Sunday, May the 3rd. And as we close out the show here, Tim, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, doing this interview and for speaking so beautifully about the the importance of saying the great yes. I mean, it's an answer you can give at any point. If you've been in a habit of saying the great no, it's not too late to change your answer and cross that threshold as you have done. Uh, so thank you again, Tim, for being on the show with me today. I really appreciate that. And thank you. And listeners, I'd be honored if you'd check out my collection theologies of terrain it would just mean the world to me it's a fantastic book Uh, tim has an author website as well which i encourage you all to visit Uh, tim's got some videos and audio of his readings on there you can also find that on the conroy center's youtube channel thank you all so much i'll be back on the program hosting again on june 24th and i look forward to talking with another exciting writer at that point thank you all guys Thank you. Thank you. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.